Hey everybody, welcome back to The Hustle. It's John Lamoureux. Okay, this week is another big one. We're talking to Ice House frontman and mastermind, Iva Davies. I love Ice House. And if you're an American, you probably know them, but primarily for just a couple of songs. In 1987, their fifth album, Man of Colors, finally hits. And this song right here, Crazy, and then Electric Blue, become huge hits. But that was pretty much it for the States. Now, back in their native Australia, they're like royalty. These guys are living legends. And I wanted to know, like, why... How does that feel? How do you deal with the, you know, the difference in success in other parts of the world? And why was that the case? What what was it about the Man of Colors album that finally got you on the pop radio and on the charts? And then where did you go? Why was it not sustained? I've never understood that. Now, if you listen to Ice House, you know that very sty- stylistically, they're very much all over the place. They're, uh, they're, each album is kind of a different journey. And that's one of the things I really like about them. Reminds me of Simple Minds, which we talk a lot about that in here, actually. And so some of those experiments in Iva's view and the and the fans, too, actually, are successful and some are not. And it's interesting to get his perspective on those things. One of my favorite albums of theirs, which is really more of an Iva solo album, is called Berlin, and it's a covers album. It is so gorgeous. I love this thing. And so we talk a lot about that, too, and just the different stylistic shifts, you know? Now, last year they put out a new live album, and this is a little confused. I got kind of tripped up when I was asking him about it, and so he had to sort of bail me out. Originally, Ice House was called Flowers, and in 1980, they put out their debut album, and it was it did pretty well. And the song off that album that was sort of a hit was called Ice House. Well, they found out quickly that Flowers was already used, so they had to change their name. Since Ice House was their most known song, they changed their name to Ice House. So last year, they put on a big 40th anniversary celebration concert of that album, and though that is now out on, on a CD. And in fact, we're going to be giving a couple of copies away. So stay tuned to the end of the podcast so you can hear about it. Okay? That is huge. So anyway, we go through this whole thing. Iva is a fantastic storyteller, such a gentleman. I love these guys. I've been trying to make this happen for years, and it finally did. Anyway, I th- I should have, I don't remember. I think Iva called me from his home in Melbourne, if I remember right. So for starters, um, I have to tell you, I saw you guys in concert once. And this was in... Uh, around 1987, Man of Colors era, and I grew up in Salt Lake City, Utah, and you guys played what was then called Symphony Hall, and uh, you were the headliners. Men Without Hats was the opener. My friends and I were on about the seventh row, and um, I never remember what stage left is. If stage left is your left or my left in the audience, which one is it? Nah. Now you are asking exactly the wrong person for that answer, because I've always struggled with that as well. (laughs) Between the two of us, I have no idea, and neither you. Okay, so if I'm facing, if I'm, I'm in the audience, I'm looking at the stage, and I'm uh, on the far right, and the big speakers are kind of in front of me, and I will never forget it. I have my lasting impression of Iva Davies is you getting up on top of those speakers. And you were kind of laying or sitting kind of on your side. You got one leg propped up and the other leg straight. You're wearing your white 
kind of fluffy shirt, poofy shirt a little bit. I think, uh, I don't remember what the pants were. But anyway, you were just a few feet in front of me. And I remember that so well. That is my lasting image of Iva Davies all these years. 33 years ago, I was just a few feet away from you in Salt Lake City at that concert. So wow. I want you to know that we knew each other, Iva. We, we have a history together. Right. Now, I can't. It sounds very unlike me to kind of do anything that radical, but really? I, I guess <laughs> stuff happens in uh, in shows that you kind of don't remember. I actually remember the the night of playing in Salt Lake City because I didn't know really what to expect by way of a kind of audience yeah. uh, there. And I remember it was probably one of the loudest audiences we ever had. It was spectacular, in fact. And I was kind of a bit shocked for some weird reason i don't remember but i actually do remember that show there's a mighty lot of shows i don't remember but yeah <laughs> uh, i do i do actually remember that yeah that um and maybe that's what led you to kind of that because it was one of those moments like the performer is sort of stopping and soaking up the the crowd's energy and the applause and maybe that's what led to you know you kind of sitting back and relaxing and you know soaking it in for a minute i will say i hate to admit this at the time like most americans I only knew the two songs. I only knew Electric Blue and Crazy. So I mostly went for Men Without Hats because I love them and I knew all their stuff. And so it was I, it was a great concert, but it, you know how those shows can be when you don't know any of the songs and you're kind of like waiting for one that you recognize to pop up. But, it, I, you know, I became a fan that night in spite of going mostly to see your opener. I apologize. I apologize yeah. for that. No apology necessary. And in fact... It's kind of the story, that's kind of the history right there of our relationship with the United States because okay. we had kind of chapters that seemed to be disconnected. I think it's a byproduct of living on the other side of the world is that there's no kind of continuity between our various small successes and larger successes eventually. And you were talking about. Uh, the period of the largest success in America was a point where we had two songs in the U.S. top 20, mm -hmm. uh, being Electric Blue and Crazy. But we'd chipped away, and that was our fifth album. So mm -hmm. we had some initial success with the first album, the Flowers album, which was kind of success on a college mm -hmm. level, and mm -hmm. surprising number of people must have heard that in pockets. Mm -hmm. So, for example, uh, somebody alerted me to... Uh, a very interesting fact a little while back was that if you go back and research Trent Reznor's history from Nine Inch Nails and you'll find, believe it or not, an album he did with his very first band that's prior to Nine Inch Nails and uh, it was a predominantly set of covers and the very first cover on that album with Trent Reznor playing keyboard is the song I Out.
And yeah, and I just couldn't believe that. And uh, wow. uh, similarly, quite recently, within the last month, uh, I was contacted by a radio station here and said, uh, we're doing a special segment here for this month because it's Australian Music Month. And we're getting acts from overseas and all around the place to do a cover version of their favourite songs. And by the way, here's a look because it was filmed to The Killers doing Electric mm. Blue. Mm. Yes, and that went viral <laughs> recently, didn't it? I couldn't believe it. I was yes. just, and such a brilliant version as well yes. because my partner was watching this footage and said to me, turned to me and said, "You can see the commitment in these guys, yeah. and especially Brandon Flower singing it because it's yeah. not the world's easiest song to sing. I've got to say, and his focus is is incredible, and the focus of the lead guitarist who is emulating beautifully the the Kenneth's saxophone mm-hmm. solo on slide guitar. It's mm-hmm. um. It's an incredible version. I, I love it a bit. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I uh, you, pr- you probably don't know this, but uh, growing up in Salt Lake City, I, not to put you in a, in a box or anything, but 80s alternative music is still very vibrant there. A lot of artists continue to go there on tour and sell out big venues, people like Howard Jones. Brandon Flowers is from... Well, he grew up in Las Vegas, but he's, he, he's, LDA, he's Mormon, and he grew up in southern Utah as well. And so that music, that your music, that came straight from the heart. I can tell you as somebody who grew up listening to the same radio stations he did, liking the same bands that he did, steeped the same way that he was, that was totally from the heart, that uh, Electric Blue cover that he did of yours. Because he and I grew up on the same kind of music. Right, and and you know, there's a theme that's going to keep coming up when I'm talking to you, and uh, it's a, it's something that's only just kind of come to the surface fully with me because uh, there have been things happened to me over the years, and they all have this same explanation, and the explanation actually comes in the form of 
something that David Bowie said to me, as you're mm -hmm. probably aware, we toured mm -hmm. with him at the, oh, yeah. his absolute peak of uh, popularity yep. on the Serious Moonlight tour. And he said to me, you never know who will be listening. Mm -hmm. And he, he said, I heard your song, which was a hit in Europe, Hey Little Girl, and mm -hmm. I was listening. And that's how come you got the invitation to tour. And this kind of theme just keeps popping up all the time um, in my life. And I guess the Killers, Brandon Flowers cover is another another mm -hmm. time because at some point he was listening and at some point Trent Reznor was listening. And yeah. um, now I just kind of scratch my head and go, I wonder who in the universe is, is, is listening. Isn't that wild? <laughs> you never know. Incredible. Yeah, you never know. Um, along, kind of along those same lines. Not that I'm Brandon Flowers or David Bowie, but after um, after that concert and becoming more aware of Ice House and paying more attention, I realized that I had always known "Hey Little Girl." I remember hearing that on the radio, but never piecing together that it was the same band. You know what I mean? I didn't know who sang that song. I just remember hearing it by osmosis when I'm like nine, ten years old. So yeah, you became this bigger deal for me. Now, let me, I had a question about this because, so a few years ago, this would have been 2015, I think, I won, I entered some contest I saw on Facebook or something, and I won a copy of your Ice House in Concert CD. I love it, by the way. But I remember that like Crazy Hey Little Girl and Electric Blue, the songs you would most be known for in the States, are all crammed together kind of at the beginning of the show. Is that because in the rest of, well, in Australia especially, those songs don't, they're not as big of a deal over there? Or is it because you were kind of getting your hits out of the way? Or what was you, what, were, what was the thinking? You know what? I never even thought about that. And, oh. and part of it, uh, it's certainly, certainly not um, any description that you've just given there, for example. Uh, it's really more about the mechanics of a set and the way uh -huh. it flows. So you'll know, for example, that we'll start winding up kind of slowly. Now, those songs represent songs which I can kind of cruise through to some mm -hmm. degree. And they're kind of warming me up 
to a point where by the time we get to the end of the show, as you know, it's going to be fairly intense and flat out. Mm-hmm. So there's a certain amount of mechanical pacing, really. Is, mm-hmm. is, is, it's very interesting that you kind of view it in terms of hits and, and, and uh, the, the United States and Europe because I hadn't really ever thought about it. In oh, interesting. Uh, huh. Yeah. And certainly nothing to do with getting hits out of the way. We, we're in a really fortunate position mm-hmm. here uh, mm-hmm. of having more songs that were hits than we can fit into a set. Yeah. And on one, in one sense, it makes it tricky because we're going to have to leave out somebody's favourite song. Yeah. That's always the tricky bit. On the other hand, it, it, it also means that exactly what you've just spoken about, how to load the set in terms of hits, is not really a factor uh, mm. when I'm putting together a set because our crowd here that are obviously fans because they bought the tickets to come to the show, they're going to know all those songs yeah. in whatever yeah. order we do. Right, what I mean. right. Yeah, um, a theme that I keep coming back to, and I, I hope this is okay for you, for me to say this, is that you guys remind me a lot of Simple Minds, um, a similar kind of trajectory, similar, similar sounds, similar hits, those kinds of things. I love that band too, so that's a, that's a huge compliment coming from me. I hope that I hope you take it that way. But when they come to the states, you know, don't you forget about me, which is their biggest hit. That's not even uh, that's more of an afterthought when they play everywhere else, like in Europe. That's in the middle somewhere. But here, that's the big, that's the crown. You know, that's the crown jewel of a show in America. So I wondered if you're telling me this story. It's similar to for you. You have so many hits when you get to play down under. You can play whatever you want in whatever order. It doesn't matter. I just thought it was interesting that those three American songs were all sort of crammed near the beginning, you know? Right, and uh, uh, I don't know whether you're aware, but we have a bit of history with Simple Minds. I do. Very good history. Yeah. And so I've actually had conversations with Jim Kerr. We've gone out to dinner whenever they come over to uh, to play here. And I had a very funny uh, conversation with him one night. It was actually quite a fancy restaurant I took him to, looking at the opera, opera house, and I'm sitting across the table, and Jim Kerr describes that song as the bastard son. That's what you forget about me. And I knew exactly why, because yeah. the other link that we have is that the co-producer of our second album, Primitive Man, as mm-hmm. uh, an Englishman living in America. Keith Forsey. Uh, Keith Forsey. And... Mm-hmm. Keith Forsey was the co-writer of Don't You Forget About Me. That's in fact, right. it was not written written by Simple Minds. And so they, they have a kind of strange relationship with they that do. song because yeah. <laughs> it was by far their biggest hit in the United States, but it's not something they wrote. I know. So, I know. <laughs> um, as I say, Jim Kerr, having the Scottish humor that he does, just refers to it as the bastard son. So. <laughs> That's hilarious. That's great. Um, okay, so let's, I mean, I'm, I'm, I have so many questions for you, Iva. I hope we get to all of them. And we've already touched on several of them, but I do want, I am curious about this Amer- the American footprint that you guys had, because for most people like me, who were young and listening mostly to pop radio at the time, uh, you guys sort of came out of nowhere. I remember very, I remember very well seeing the video for Crazy, and here's this guy with this large curly mullet. I'd never heard of him before. The song was great. Where did this come from? Why have I never heard of these people? Ice House. I know Icicle Works, but I don't know what Ice House is. And then Man of Colors becomes huge, but then nothing really after that. And I have a lot of questions as to why there was not more immediately after Man of Colors. It seems to me that the Great Southern Land kind of compilation comes out eventually, 
And that gets, I remember seeing the video to Great Southern Land and thinking, I like this song a lot too, but why is it just getting played on alternative radio? All the other stuff was on pop radio. What's going on? Is this lesser than? I'm confused. You know? Well, I can give you the explanation to it pretty simply, in fact. Although it's not a great uh, chapter of my life. Hmm. So you've got to imagine a situation where we had worked for a long time, but we came out of the blocks flying uh, with the very first album. There was a very simple reason for that. We'd actually been playing for nearly three years, and we had when we uh, you know, part way into that three years, when we were picked up by a very powerful management company in Australia, and they had uh, this collective of managers who managed at that time the two biggest bands in Australia by far, and that was a band called Cold Chisel and a band called The Angels, mm -hmm. and we were the kind of apprentices. And by then, these managers had. A quite a bit of experience in, uh, and they'd made some mistakes with the, mm. with the management and some of the contracts and we benefited from what they'd learned but one of the things that they were doing which I was kind of unaware was that they worked us into the ground I mean we were doing a ridiculous amount of touring and touring in Australia is particularly difficult because put it that this way in, in those days a, Mel a, a drive between sydney and melbourne would take you 12 to 14 hours oh, goodness. and a lot of these drives that we did were midweek and overnight so we yeah. would do two shows in melbourne we were still helping load our own gear so i remember one night we did a show in a club called the tiger lounge and then we packed up our gear and we moved to a, a place that was four stories up mm. it was four, four four sets of staircases with yeah. an organ and a leslie cabinet and guitar amplifiers, played a place called Bananas, packed that up, drove overnight to Sydney 14 hours and arrived at the, the Broadway Hotel uh, right in the centre of Sydney just in time to set up for another show. And this was, you know, one day out of nine shows that week and the weeks were relentless and went on and the management came back to us and said, we're doing this because by the time you record that first album, you've got a ready-made sales market. You've played to so many people who mm. will want your first album, and that's exactly what had happened. Really? And so that was that was the Flowers album. So it was the largest-selling debut album by any Australian band at that point. And I think right within on. the first few weeks, it sold 280,000 copies. Right on. But it wasn't plain sailing from there, and it certainly wasn't in the United States. So uh, we came over to the United States. We toured. As I said, we, we made some inroads with that first album, 
as a kind of college band, I guess mm-hmm. you know the distinction mm-hmm. in that particular sector of the audience. And what was interesting was that there was a young Irish band called U2, and they were doing <laughs> the same club circuit exactly as we were doing. So you can't say that the first album in the United States was a runaway success by any means, but mm-hmm. it was a good introduction. And uh, then, as you say, we had a hit with Hey Little Girl from the second album, so we made some progress there, and we certainly had very big success in uh, the United in um, mm-hmm. in Europe with Hey Little Girl, much more so than the United States. But the third album was not a success in the United States; it wasn't a great success in Australia, and so we kind of had a, a kick in the guts sort of mm-hmm. moment with a third album. But in a way, that kind of sharpened up the. Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? The hunger, in a way. Mm. And we threw absolutely everything we could throw at the fourth album. And uh, some brand new, brilliant technology had just arrived. We recorded it in England with two different, sort of in two halves, with two different producers. Uh, but the Mitsubishi Digital 32 track, multi-track uh, tape recorder, had just arrived. So mm-hmm. that album, the fourth album, Measure for Measure, is uh, one of the first fully digital uh, recordings ever released um, is sort of right up there with the pioneers because of course the brand new t- CD technology mm-hmm. had just arrived mm-hmm. and what happened with that is that we went back to the United States and we worked and we worked and we worked and we had some minor success so Measure for Measure didn't produce those songs that you immediately that mm-hmm. immediately spring to mind for you like Crazy and Electric Blue what it produced was about three top 50 hits. The first of which was a song called No Promises. A winter palace from the Arabian nights Wide waves on an ocean Gems from a golden age Love it. I, measure uh, for Measure not, and Sidewalk, I gotta say, might be my favorite Ice House albums. Isn't that weird? Right. Even though they're the lesser known is, in the States. It, yeah. it is weird. Um, yeah, because, uh, but they're not perceived in the United States. Measure for Measure was was just enough for the record company mm-hmm. to kind of smell blood. If mm-hmm. I can put it 
put it, put it that way. It had just enough success, you know, three top 50 hits, Mr. Big, Cross the Border, No Promise has probably been the most notable. Mm-hmm. And so when we got to Man of Colors, in a sense, uh, part of me wanted to think the stage is set. If, if, as long as we can get people to listen to Crazy, which was the first single, mm-hmm. then we've got a chance of actually doing something significant. And I remember I was actually on holidays uh, up the north coast of New South Wales in, in Australia, and it's a time pre-mobile phones, but I had a scheduled call to my manager who was in the United States, and um, it was in a phone booth, and I was standing outside the phone booth waiting for the call, and uh, picked up the phone, and he said, we've just made, Crazy has just made it into the U.S. top 20. Mm-hmm. And it was a kind of surreal moment. I mm-hmm. just went, wow, you know. Mm-hmm. Here am I on the other side of the world, and it's all happening in the United States. And in a way, I think Crazy kind of plays the trail for Electric Blue. Crazy did the kind of heavy lifting. And mm-hmm. um, when Electric Blue came out, by then, uh, a lot of radio programmers in the United States suddenly had been introduced to the existence of this band right. from Australia and their fifth album. <laughs> so mm-hmm. it was a long way in. Yeah. You you want you asked the question. Why well, the question, yeah. Like, so, why why didn't it continue after Man of Col- Man, uh, Man of Colors? Why did it end? Now, now it's a bit of a sad story because, and it runs like this. So, uh, Man of Colors was a ridiculously successful album in Australia, and still is regarded, I think, as one of the highest selling Australian albums ever. It was eleven weeks at number one. It it sold a million copies and resulted in a very, very long tour, and then that tour took in America. We were in uh, the United States for seven months straight, mm, which is a long time to be slogging away in a different city every night. And I got back to write the next album. Uh, it was a daunting prospect. Mm-hmm. And what had happened in my personal life at that point kind of gave me the core idea of how I would follow Man of Colors. I didn't want to write just another collection of uh, disjointed songs. I wanted to do something that had a thread to it. And a very strange thing happened. My parents were living around the corner from where I had my dilapidated old terrace mm-hmm. house with the studio in it. Mm-hmm. When my mother received some news, her big brother had been a career pilot. Um, with the RAAF uh, before World War II, II broke out. So by the time the war started, uh, he was already quite a high-ranking flyer. In fact, he was a squadron leader. Mm. And it was decided that in New Guinea, the Australian Air Force needed a light design of bomber. And so they flew over from England a thing called a Beaufort bomber, which is a smaller a bomber with a crew of four. And they started manufacturing these bombers in Australia and so my uncle Charlie um, was sent uh, up to New Guinea and was about to undertake his first mission. They went out one night, I think there were three, there was a squadron of three of these bombers, and they were to attack a Japanese uh, merchant ship that was anchored in one of the harbours there. And they flew across and uh, found their target, and then they successfully attacked this ship, and then they turned around and flew back. And on the way back... Uh, they radioed into Port Moresby Airport, uh, where the uh, where the uh, Air Force was for a position at bearing, mm-hmm. and was told that they'd gone too far south and they were out over the ocean. And so they turned around and came back and then disappeared. Now, mm-hmm. at that point, 
he'd been missing in action, presumed dead, for 42 years. When my oh. mother got con- contacted by the uh, RAAF, and this is what had happened. In a very, very remote uh, area in the mountains, very uh, the jungle of, of, uh, of New Guinea, mm-hmm. a native hunting um, party had gone up, and in the process of uh, their hunting, they came across the wreckage of a plane. And they came back and they report, reported it to the local Australian um, Air Force representatives. And it was so inaccessible that the the Air Force representatives gave them a camera and trained them how to operate the camera to take photos and sent them off again into the jungle. Wow. And when they came back, they had these photos of this crashed plane. And uh, they didn't necessarily immediately recognize the markings on the plane and there was a reason for that but they eventually identified this plane as being my uncle charlie's plane and what had happened was that he wasn't too far south he wasn't out over the sea he was directly on course and should have kept going the way he thought he did but the the 19 year old radio operator had given him a bad uh, piece of information on his bearings and when they turned around to fly back they flew straight into a mountain at night And why they didn't recognize the plane was that my Uncle Charlie had been flying the prototype that had flown out for England. And so the Australian markings on the paint had peeled off over the years, exposing the British markings that Mm. identified it. Um, Now, this was a big story, and my parents had to go to New Guinea for a full military funeral Mm. and he's buried in in lay uh, military cemetery there. Um, along with the other three crew members. But it impacted my uh, mother, his his little sister, a lot. Mm -hmm. And it gave me an idea. And I thought, you know, this is such an extraordinary story, but nobody except this little family knows this story. And there must be thousands and tens of thousands of stories about Australians who are not famous that could be told and could become uh, starting points for songs. Mm -hmm. And so... I went into this big central library um, in the middle of Sydney. It's called the Mitchell Library. And I went through you know, decades and decades and decades of newspapers that are uh, kind of kept there on microfiche uh, documentation. And my parents came in with me too. And we sat there for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks. And we're studying stories from the news. And that brought up a number of characters. Uh, a person called Tilly Devine, who was a notorious head of the kind of underworld in Sydney during... Uh, the 1930s, uh, which was dominated by what were referred to as the razor gangs. And these were guys who just used to use razor blades to intimidate people. And she ran brothels. And, mm. you know, she was the boss of Sydney on the dark side. Right. Um, a whole lot of stories came out of this. And they became starting points for for the set of songs, which was this, the album that followed Man of Colours, an album called Code Blue. Yep. What I did in writing those songs was to use these stories as starting points, but to not make them specific to the song about that particular story. So, for example, the opening track of Code Blue is a song called Mercy on the Boy.
and was inspired by a very famous Australian book uh, called The Turn of His Natural Life, which is about a particularly notorious convict settlement that was in Tasmania way back at the beginning of colonisation here. And so for The Turn of His Natural Life, this book is actually about uh, a particular convict and group of convicts who wanted to escape. And my song, Mercy on the Boy, is loosely about the whole idea of being trapped, being trapped in a relationship, being trapped in whatever circumstance and trying to break free and get out. So that's how loosely oh. uh, my, my songs relate to their original starting point. Yeah. Now, for the sake of the Australian release, we decided to do a little booklet. And the booklet outlined the sort of back stories on these songs, uh, all their starting points, put it that way. Mm-hmm. But of course, being a songwriter by then, having had some experience, of course, I, I wanted to make these songs appeal universally. So I was not too specific in crafting the lyrics. But they were general. They were as um, universal an idea as the one I just outlined with uh-huh. the boy. You know, I'm uh-huh. trapped. I've got to break out of here. However, at some point, the American and, and European record company, international record company that we had, Chrysalis Records, somebody within Chrysalis got wind of the idea that these songs for Australia had a starting point in Australian songs. Mm. And they decided that, I'm I'm sure they didn't even listen to the album. Um, They decided that they couldn't possibly release an album which was just about Australian (laughs) songs. And they simply refused to release it. And that effectively was the end of our international career because oh of this complete and utter uh, piece of ignorance and misunderstanding. Yes. So, no, I want you now for your homework to go away and listen to Code Blue and study those lyrics and tell me that you learn absolutely nothing about <laughs> any, of the, any of the people that, that, um, that might have been the starting points to these songs, except for one song, and the song's about my uncle, and it's called Charlie Sky. It's about my yeah. uncle playing. Charlie was just a boy Lay back in an open field And followed those distant wings Around in lazy circles When are they gonna come down, he said Or are they watching over Me here on the ground instead Maybe they just fly forever Don't forget about heroes You simply shake their hands And you watch them wave goodbye Jump. 
Okay. I just listened to it today. But of course I didn't know the I didn't know any of this history behind it all. And you know, you say that and that is so dumb. Never mind the fact that Midnight Oil are huge in America and their entire catalog is all Australian government oppression to the natural people. You know what I mean? To the native people. Like that can fly, but Ice House can't fly? Why? I know it was insane. And of course it was absolutely heartbreaking. But uh, And it was heartbreaking enough that I, I really kind of didn't bother after yeah. that. I just thought, well, you know, if that's, if that's the reward I'm going to get for writing what I believe is a, a good set of universal songs that are entertaining without having any of that information yeah. at all, uh, then, you know, I'm, I, I'm really not going to break my back doing that. Sure. So, so that was that was why you never heard from us after Matt. Okay, <laughs> I've wondered. I've always wondered. Now, did you even tour America again after the Man of Colors era? No, that was the last time. Yeah, that's so what I thought. Okay. It kind of all it all sort of ended there. Of course, it didn't end there in Australia and New Zealand. We we carried on, but mm-hmm. uh, not for that long. And then I got to a point, I guess personally, where my first child was born, mm-hmm. and. Uh, she was six weeks old when I basically decided to retire after 16 mm-hmm. very, very full-on years of touring mm-hmm. and, and writing and recording. And that was kind of where it was left for another 16 years. We didn't. Uh, we did a couple of sort of private shows, mm-hmm. but a handful, uh, you know, considering the 16 years. Mm-hmm. And in 2009, we Australia was absolutely devastated by an incredibly bad bushfire season and a lot of people died in in Mm -hmm. victoria especially followed by an incredible flooding event in queensland and it was enough that the entire music industry kind of galvanized and a fellow who uh, had been our tour manager and still is our tour manager and he started working with us uh, in 1986 and he came up with an idea and he put it to a big promoter here and the idea played out this way there were two simultaneous concerts, one in Melbourne and one in Sydney. So they're going on at exactly the same time, and they were the sort of top lineup of um, Australian acts, and it was uh, entitled Sound Relief, and it was a fundraiser. Uh-huh. And they were televised, and my tour manager, who I hadn't uh, heard from for some time, rang me up, and he told me that he'd come up with this idea, and he said, and by the way, you're headlining to Sydney. Oh. And I said to Larry... Are you completely insane? We haven't played for 16 years. Anyway, we did play. And at the end of that, we kind of looked at each other and went, well, that was fun. Uh-huh. We should do that a bit more. <laughs> um, right and that was, uh, as I say, 2009. And that's where we kind of fired up again as a performing yeah. unit, which we're still Good. doing it because uh, everything's locked down at the moment. Yeah, but uh, that's, what, that's what we do. Yeah. Good. Okay. Um, boy, I've wondered what the story was and all of this for so many years. So thanks for telling me that. I have, I want to ask you about a few of my favorite songs, a few of my favorite moments and stuff like that. I'm really curious to hear some of the stories behind them. I think my favorite Ice House song is Glam.
the video makes me laugh, I have to admit, every time. Uh, how do you, tell me about the writing of Glam and tell me about how, <laughs> how you feel about the video all these years later. Well, actually, it's, it's quite a big backstory to really? that. So I produced demos for that set of songs, for the albums, second albums, Primitive Man, and mm -hmm. uh, contains, as you know, the Great Southern Land. And I'd given these demos to the record company, and they all seemed very happy. I'd given them, you know, all the songs that I, you know, we was proposing to record. And we got right to the end part of the recording. I was in Los Angeles working in Westlake. As it happens, uh, Westlake is a very famous studio, and it has two rooms with a hallway down the middle. It so happened, and I had no idea at the time, that next door to me, in a very closed environment, um, there was one Michael Jackson recording Thriller. Oh. So there we were, we were, we were just about finished, and we got this word back from the record company, and it's that dreaded um, mm -hmm. you get from a record company, I'm not the first to get it in history. We don't hear a single, and I looked at the, uh, Keith Force here, who was the co-producer, and I said, well, why didn't they tell us that five months ago, you right. know, before we started recording? And I gave them all the songs, and they seemed to be very happy. Anyway, it was a fairly desperate sort of situation because I'm, I don't write songs easily, and I, I was, you know, a long way away from my funny little front bedroom setup mm -hmm. that I had back in Australia and, and my little track and um, tape machine and, and the tools, and I was certainly not in the kind of headspace for starting again and writing more songs, and Keith Forsey could see that. And uh, he, had, he himself had an interesting backstory because uh, he was a drummer and mm -hmm. he was an incredibly good drummer. And he'd mm -hmm. been such a good drummer that he'd been the drummer for Giorgio Moroder for mm -hmm. um, 10 years at least and had played on probably all of those incredible mm -hmm. Donna Summer disco hits and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. And in fact, he had lived in Munich and worked there mm. with Giorgio Moroder for, for most of that 10 years. Mm. But it so happened, he said... Listen, Giorgio, Giorgio's back in Switzerland, and I'm, I'm house mining his, his house. Well, it wasn't a house, it was a mansion. Of course. And he said, look, it's got a full 24-track recording studio in it. Why don't you come up and stay with me for a couple of days and see what you, know, you can come up with? And I found this incredibly awkward because you know, I'm not good with anybody else in the room when I'm trying to write songs. Uh -huh. <laughs> um, but anyway, we did, and we got up to his, his house, uh, in inverted commas, well, it was a proper mansion. It was in Bel Air, and you walked in, and there was a sunken lounge room with a white oh. grand piano in it that looked over the swimming pool mm. and out across the lights of Los Angeles to the ocean. Uh, it was a proper rock star producer mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. mansion, and sure enough, had this, um, this little studio in it. Keith Forsey was not much of an engineer. In fact, we could only get one channel on the desk working, mm -hmm. and uh, so, it, so everything went through that one channel. And I had suddenly realized, I brought my main keyboard with me, a thing called a Prophet 5, and mm -hmm. uh, I had that, and there was a guitar there, and a bass guitar, and a, there was an electric piano, a Wurlitzer, and I suddenly realized that I'd left the kind of key to my whole writing uh, toolbox, which was the lead drum, uh, drum machine that was the basis of that album. I said, look, I've, I left that back in Westlake, and uh, Keith Horsey looked at me and he said, don't worry, don't worry, let me make a phone call. Anyway, within half an hour, the doorbell went and standing in the doorway, holding a kind of slightly older looking version of my Lynn drum was one Roger Lynn. No! And, what? And, and, and what he had in his hands was the absolute serial number 000000, 000, 000 number one 
Lindrum ever built by him. So there it was. I had this. I had this brand. This 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 legend machine. That's incredible. Um, and started working. And I worked on three backing tracks. I guess you'd call them. Now, one of them went on to be Hey Little Girl. So that oh, okay. was pretty amazing when I think about you know working under that sort of pressure. The two other songs. One of them I kind of was interested in going back to some of my roots and influences, and, and that was one Mark Boland and T-Rex. Hmm. So I developed this backing track and with just putting layers and layers of you know, appropriate things on it that I thought uh, would be fun and some backing vocals that were you know, kind of wordless, mm-hmm. uh, but fun also and in the style of that kind of period of glam. Mm-hmm. And a kind of chorus, I guess, which which I roughly sang onto the tape up in George Ann Motors' home studio, and uh, and that chorus was simply the words dedicated to glam. That's it. Now I fully intended at some point to come back and actually finish that as a whole song. Um, so it was never really intended to be left in that kind of half finished state. Uh-huh, uh-huh. But at some point, I guess I made a, an executive decision, which was, you know what. Let's just leave it there because it's got a certain something about it. Yeah, it does. I, I really didn't have any kind of vocal line ideas to fill up the verses with. But the story of the third sketch that was done in George Amaroda's house is kind of even more strange. Ooh. And that is that uh, when it was all scheduled, uh, it was expected that I would have finished the album by then, but I clearly hadn't finished uh-huh. the album. And my girlfriend at the time was a and a teacher uh, back in Australia, and she was coming to the school holidays, and she'd already pre-booked a flight to come over and join me to have a holiday in Los Angeles and celebrate you know, the, the album being finished. Uh-huh. Now, when she arrived, she was incredibly jet-lagged. It was a big a journey from, from Sydney to Los Angeles in those days. She had to stop in Hawaii and uh, refuel, and it was uh, something like mm-hmm. 18 hours or 20 hours or something like yeah. that. And she just wanted to lie down and go to sleep. But the problem was I had backing track and I had an idea for a vocal line and I had some words, but I hadn't got to try it out. And I had with me in the apartment that I was staying in a little machine called a Porter Studio. And the Porter Studio was a four-track uh, tape recorder that recorded onto cassettes. I had a microphone and I, a set of headphones, but I uh, didn't have anywhere in the flat to get away f- to so that I wouldn't wake up my girlfriend who was sleeping. There was a second bedroom, though, and what I did was uh, I installed all of this stuff in the wardrobe and closed the doors and uh-huh. <laughs> closed myself into the into the wardrobe and and sang the guide vocal of a song called One by One.
So one by one from that album was recorded. Uh, the, the demo was was finished off with me singing in a wardrobe with my girlfriend asleep <laughs> in, in the same room. <laughs> That's great. I love stories like that. That is great. Um, One other question about glam, though. Whose idea was the drumsticks? When you're is that and are they real (laughs) drumsticks or no? Yeah, they are. And the drumsticks were my idea, and I have to say, it's um, uh, Keith Forsey was very happy to to perform that for me, being a drummer. Look, it harks back to uh, Ant Music by. That's exactly what I thought of. Yes, exactly. Yes. Yeah. And I guess, you know, it was all about trying to recreate the kind of vibe of that glam period and the sort of uh, arsenal of sounds and styles of sounds. Even the guitar on that was put through a very cheap fuzz box Mm. and it was quite a deliberate effort to kind of get a fairly retro guitar sound. So, you know, it was just me making a little kind of capsule of the 1970s. That's it. Perfect. Um, Now, so going back to the video... If when you look at that video, if you were to show that to a room full of people, would you think, hell yeah, folks, look how hot and good looking and like glamorous I was back then? Or are you like, oh, gosh, this is uh, I'm wearing a lot of makeup. I've got some I, I'm taking my shirt off. What are your feelings about that video? Because it's kind of funny in retrospect well, to me. I, I can remember clearly, and I guess they were older, my children. I, I remember the moment I actually played that to my kind of nearly grown-up children. <laughs> and the reaction that that got was absolutely priceless. <laughs> they couldn't believe their eyes. And <laughs> I think the thing about it is I had a, uh, I had a strange relationship with, with mu- music videos in so much as I kind of didn't get involved. I'll explain that a bit further. So my focus, and I guess I thought my job, was music, was to produce the music, to record the music, to perform the music. And then there was this other thing. And the other thing was the whole music video thing. So you've got to remember, we started doing these sort of things before MTV existed. So the first couple of uh, music videos we did for the Flowers album were promotional things which were going to be played on the various TV music shows and that was the purpose that they served and right from the beginning I kind of didn't get involved I didn't sit down with a director and talk about you know what the idea of the, the the music video was going to be I kind of turned up on the day and said okay what are we doing mm-hmm. As a result of which, uh, I've worn some extraordinarily bad clothes in, in, <laughs> in music videos. Uh, I think the crazy is probably one of them with uh, a pair of jodhpurs and goodness knows what, you know, braces and, uh-huh. uh, uh, you know, uh, sort of unspeakable things, really. And I did sort of invest a lot of trust into the directors uh-huh. and, and the people involved. You know, I kind of, it was a case of like, if I give these people a kind of, you know, blank sheet what are they going to write on uh-huh. it? You know, this could be this could be interesting. And in that particular case, it was quite a cheap video. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah, you could tell. And there's one point where you even start laughing near the end. Like you can tell that you're almost breaking yourself up with how serious and uh, you know glamorous you're supposed to look. That's my that's my read of it anyway. Oh, absolutely. I knew it was kind of uh-huh. a laugh. And I knew it was slightly edgy, too. It's uh-huh. of, you know, it's, you never quite knew. You know, the, the, the music video we did for the song Ice House was quite an expensive affair, mm-hmm. and it was shot in London. And it was directed by Russell Mulcahy. He was one of the mm-hmm. most sort of famous and successful Australian director. But he, by then, was 
kind of the music video director oh, yeah. of the world. He was Duran Duran does Highlander. John. Oh, yeah, he's huge. So a lot of money was spent on that, and then we got it back to Australia, and there was a very powerful Australian TV show on the ABC, the Australian Broadcasting Corporation, is the kind of government um, television station, as it were, and nationally, sort of all over the country, obviously. And um, on a Sunday evening at about six o'clock, it was a very, very famous program, and, and every every Australian family just about sat down and watched um, this music show uh, called Countdown. Mm-hmm. And Countdown was incredibly powerful, and in fact, the host Molly Meldrum was responsible for lots of things, He's including Abba's Abba's career. He Absolutely. actually yeah. broke Abba from from Melbourne, which is where it was shot. Mm-hmm. He made the prediction. He made this discovery of Abba, and Abba had their first hits in Australia, and then, of course, that translated to the rest of the world, and the rest, as they say, is history. But yeah. Countdown received our music video for Ice House, and it was banned apparently because it was too macabre for a family, you know, Sunday evening okay. music show. Uh-huh. So I never quite knew when we were making these music videos what would come out of it and where it would go. And I certainly didn't see them getting banned before it, you know, before it was coming. So, yes, yeah, so that's the sort of simple explanation to, to, to the okay. glam music videos. I, I just turned up, turned up on the day, really. I love it. I love that. I love the video. I love the song. Now, speaking of things I love, your Berlin album is huge for me. I I love that album. That's my that's one of my favorites ever. I, I don't even know what my questions are because I could just talk to you for hours about your thinking and process behind every single cover on there. All Tomorrow's Parties, Disappointed, Love Like Blood, Let There Be Love. What these are, I just have to tell you, Iva, that album is gorgeous and magical. I love it so much. So thank you for making Berlin on top of everything else. Well, well, thank you for that. It was a, it was a, it well, a simple explanation for that too. Because by the time we got to, I guess the last, effectively the last Ice House studio album was an album called Big Wheel. Kind of the, it was a it was a put it this way it was an audacious experiment um, it is. and very heavy it, it, it is very heavy and it's yeah. um, and it was too heavy for I think uh, the audience that we collected mm. in Australia for man of colors 
included a lot of 13-year-old girls. And, mm. uh, you know, fast forward a couple of years to, to, uh, to us uh, launching that album, Big Wheel, and I'm sure it absolutely mystified almost <laughs> my entire fan I base. But I guess by then, I was kind of uh, worn out from the whole, you know, write an album, tour an album, you know, write another album, record it, promote it, tour an album. It was a kind of big revolving wheel. And I thought, well, I'm going to do something, but I'm going to make it easy on myself. I'm not going to write the songs. I'm going to do a covers album. Now, mm-hmm. I started out, and by this time I... I had my own little studio, which a digital studio, and I was completely self-contained and started out recording some of my favorite songs. And pretty soon I realized that it was kind of pointless. What I was doing was pointless. Mm-hmm. I recorded a version of um, of John Lennon's How Do You Sleep and mm-hmm. uh, a song by a legendary British band called Free. Mm-hmm. And I found myself sort of remaking the originals. And mm-hmm. I listened to these things back when I'd finished them and went, well, what was the point of that? You know, I mean, I'm mm-hmm. not bringing anything new to them at all. And this is actually a lot harder than I thought it was going to be. And at a certain point, I had a kind of flash and it was to do with... So imagine, take yourself back to, you know, the period of uh, Frédéric Chopin, uh, mm-hmm. who was a kind of rock star pianist in his in his day. And what was quite common in those days was that a lot of uh, well-heeled families might have a a fairly generous sort of house that they'd have a salon in and probably with a piano and it was not uncommon for people to kind of uh, come over to uh, to visit and and set up in this salon and a lot of people played musical instruments in that class of people and you know get together a little group and gathered around the piano perhaps a cello and a, a violin uh, mm-hmm. and play some music for, you know, to entertain themselves. So I had this sort of picture of the 19th century salon and a little group of musicians, and I thought, well, I wonder if I gave myself a palette that was limited to mm-hmm. that kind of thing, and mm-hmm. I started trying to do these songs, what would happen? And instantly, as soon as I began that experiment, so I gave myself a palette of a, a jazz drummer playing mm-hmm. with brushes, uh, perhaps a, a cello, you know, kind of miscellaneous but limited acoustic instruments, and right at the centre of this, the, the piano. And I had a, an associate, a fellow by the name of Max Lambert. Now, Max Lambert, uh, go back 10 years before embarking on this Berlin uh, album, I had been invited to create a, a ballet school for a contemporary dance company called the Sydney Dance Company. Now, the Sydney Dance Company were famous all over the world, so they weren't just an, a, a sort of an Australian thing. And they were at their peak, and this is 1985, and I did create a score to a ballet called Boxers. Mm. And while I was there, you know, I sort of noted that the dancers were doing classes in the morning and so on, and there was a pianist in the corner, and he was particularly brilliant at doing what he did and it's a quite a particular thing because the pianist listens to the dance master and the dance master or mistress say you, you have to do, we're going to do a grand jeté arabesque blah 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 and they rattle off what the dance you know, that they're going to practice is and so the pianist has to be clever enough to know all of that stuff but also be able to improvise a piece of music out of thin air that's the right tempo that accommodates you know th- those kinds of movements and so on and so forth and this particular pianist i'd noticed was his fellow max lambert so mm-hmm. 10 years fast forward 
I rang up Max and said, this is what I'm working on, a, cover, a covers album, and this is my little salon group that I've put together in my head that's my, my set of instruments that I'm going to use. And I need an absolutely extravagant pianist. And I know you're mm. a graduate of the New South Wales Conservatorium of Music, which was Australia's leading musical institute. And he had a brilliant classical technique, but he'd spent most of his working life uh, working in musical theatre. And so he understood popular song and could cover a lot of territory, if you know what I mean, musically speaking. Yeah. So Max became my key ally, and we started attacking these songs. And they are, as you've quite rightly pointed out, a mm -hmm. quite strange collection of songs. And they're for all sorts of reasons. A lot of these songs were kind of fringe songs when they yeah. came out. They weren't necessarily mainstream hits. I remember, for example, hearing um, Disappointed by Public yes. Limited and thinking, wow, you know, mm -hmm. this is something else. I, I, yep. I've got a vivid picture of me seeing it on a, on a Saturday morning music show on television mm. and just going, this is a great song. And I'd filed that away somewhere. And... Promises, promises, oh, songs were piling out i'd seen killing joke playing a little mm -hmm. club in sydney called the gaelic club and uh, at the time they had uh, a kind of semi underground hit with a song called love like blood and oh. i loved that song me too um, yes Cut the rose in 
And so I, I ended up collecting all these songs and giving them the salon um, ensemble treatment. And and that did involve, you know, a, a real cellist and, mm-hmm. and certainly Max on piano. But I got a little way into this process and I said to turn to Max, and of course he'd had a long history with the Sydney Dance Company, and I said, I can see this being the score of a, another contemporary ballet. Yeah. And Max looked at me and said, why don't we send some of these songs off to Graham Murphy? Graham Murphy was the sort of founder of the Sydney Dance Company and the artistic director and choreographer. And Graham loved them. <laughs> and so this collection of songs, which is the album to which you refer, the Berlin mm-hmm. Tapes, became slowly a ballet score which accommodated mm-hmm. seven of those songs and this was all well and good and Graham was off choreographing it and everything was going swimmingly and then a piece of bad news turned up at the time I was working with Keith Welsh who was a co-founding member of Flowers um, mm-hmm. the bass player and still working with him as manager and he was looking after the kind of business affairs of this um, ballet as it was forming and he came back to me and he said I've just had a meeting with the publishers and there's some really bad news and I said what's the bad news don't I, I know you don't have to get permission to do a cover version of something and he said yes mm-hmm. but that's right you can record it on the album and you don't have to ask any permission at all but there's a whole set of rights that are mm. just for pieces of music that are going to be used in a theatrical production oh. and they're called grand rights and here's the really bad news not only do we have to get permission to use any of these songs but we don't we can't get permission from the artist's manager or the artist's publishing company or the artist's um, record company, you have to get the permission directly from oh. the artist. Oh. Now, oh. let me reel off the names of the people who <laughs> I supposedly was going to have to get to listen to my little pieces of yeah. song <clears throat> cover versions. David Bowie, mm-hmm. Brian Ferry, mm-hmm. Andy Partridge from XTC. Mm-hmm. Uh, the butlers from Psychedelic Furs, mm-hmm. uh, Lou Reed, David Byrne from Talking Heads. Yeah. Now, the amazing thing about all this is, thanks to Keith, uh, primarily, all of those artists were approached, did listen to the, my versions of their songs, and gave permission, all yeah. except one. Oh. Can you say, are you ready to say who it is? <laughs> the ultimate, this is, uh, the ultimate song of the ballet and we were, we're talking we're not that far away from opening night here yeah because this bit of information was sort of sprung on me a fair way into it if you know what I mean uh-huh the ultimate moment of the ballet was Lou Reed's All Tomorrow's oh, Party I was afraid of this yeah. and what costume shall the
just hearing that because I could just imagine how great that must have felt for you oh my gosh good that's a great story now speaking of people that mean a lot to you Bowie obviously is a I mean you're a huge Bowie guy I, Bowie's my number one too there's two Bowie covers there's Loving the Alien and Heroes on this album watching them come and go the Templars and the Saracens They're traveling the Holy Land Opening telegrams Torture comes and torture goes Knights will give you anything They bear the cross of Cordelion Salvation for the mirror blind but if you pray, all your sins are looked on. 
toured with him. Can you tell us a Bowie's a story? And going back to meeting your heroes, that must have been incredible when you're asked to open for Bowie on Sirius Moonlight in Europe at that time. So what happened was that uh, this is the second album, Primitive Man, and we had a hit in Europe uh, with a song called Hey Little Girl. Yeah. Now, what happened was this kind of recurring theme um, uh, happened at this point. And we got contacted uh, by David Bowie's management. And, of course, he was enjoying the absolute pinnacle of his, his career because he'd finally produced a song that was a hit in the United States. And not only was it a hit, it was a number one hit with a song called Let's Dance. And the album was called uh, Serious Moonlight. Mm -hmm. And so he was absolutely at the top of his game at that point and, and his popularity. So we were invited to tour in Europe, uh, in fact, the world uh, mm -hmm. on this tour. And then something else happened. We were contacted by Peter Gabriel's management. Oh. Oh. And somewhere along the line, somebody, whether it was Gabriel or not, I'll never know, had heard Hey Little Girl as well. And he invited us to tour with oh. him. Oh. Oh. Now, Peter Gabriel had been one of my great heroes mm -hmm. as well. And so there I was with this impossible decision. <laughs> <laughs> Who do I tour with? Will it be David Bowie or Peter Gabriel? Oh, my gosh. Oh. And in the end, I knew that the Bowie tour would be just so massive that I would be witnessing, should I decide on touring with Bowie, what success is like in this rock and roll music industry at that level. Uh, because the whole way, it had kind of scared, the potential of it had scared me a little bit. Mm -hmm. I was slightly wary of it. Sure. So we arrived and we were in uh, Germany at the time um, and uh, we were playing our own shows and we were playing, I think in Hamburg, at a big outdoor um, concert. Uh, there would have been 20,000 people there and it was, you know, we were one of many on the, on the bill. And we were playing away and, and Guy Pratt, who was our bass player at the time, sort of sidled over to me mid-song and nudged me with his elbow and whispered in my ear over the over the song that we were playing don't look now but dave's over there and i had no idea what he was talking about because um, that was the furthest thing from my mind uh -huh. and i couldn't help myself i had to look and i turned to look side stage and there was david bowie in that oh. golf cap um, oh. trying to hide under it and uh <laughs> singing along to great southern land the song oh. that we were playing at the time <laughs> and uh the next song that was up in our set was a song going right back to the Flowers period, which was highly influenced uh, by lots of people, but including uh, David Bowie, probably as his Ziggy self. Uh -huh. And it was the, the song We Can Get Together. There must be something we can talk about. Don't go too far. Remember, there's just one thing. Whenever you come this way, you know we'll get you 
stylistically um, very much kind of a kindred spirit to that that sort of sound. And so for that song, I put on my most faithful Ziggy Stardust accent uh-huh. um, and delivered the song as Ziggy Stardust would have done. <laughs> yes, <laughs> with David with David Bowie sitting side stage, and I think he got the joke. But he wasn't there the next song. He'd taken off. Uh-huh. Um, but he's the one who I had a conversation with and it went along the lines of, you never know who will be listening. And that's yes. happened to me so many times. Yes. Um, so oh, that, was an, that was an incredible, that was an incredible experience because we were playing to 45,000 to 70,000 people every single show. Oh. And sadly, we had commitments already pre-booked in North America, so we couldn't continue on with the North mm-hmm. American uh, leg of that Bowie tour which is a great shame, but it was just enough of an experience for yeah. me to see the sheer scale of operations when you're playing to 70,000 people. Oh my gosh, I can imagine. Were you able to socialize or interact with him very much on that tour? Uh, look, nobody could socialize or interact mm. with him very much except for that short conversation. I do have a yeah. photo of um, he and I at, um, uh, outside our, our, our dressing room caravan at Milton Keynes, which is okay. a bit north of London. And we did three shows with him there and, and they were each 70,000 people on a hill oh, and you, I, I've got to say when you're looking at 70,000 people on a hill you can't really see where they yeah, stop um, but uh, his popularity was so ridiculous at that point that he couldn't go anywhere yeah, or do anything and there was an incident in a club that we were both at but he'd been there slightly earlier than Guy Pratt and myself and the band were there and they were talking in sort of hushed tones because what had happened was that He'd been spotted in this club, and the crowd had pressed in so quickly and so mm. heavily that he was actually in danger of getting crushed, mm. and they had to pass him out over the heads of the of the pundits to get him out of the club. And it was mm. it was a fairly dangerous situation. I can see that. Uh, I remember checking into the hotel in Rotterdam where we were all staying, and I think David Bowie and his band had taken a whole floor of the hotel right. in order to keep security up because. The entire lobby area was full of people dressed as Ziggy Stardust, oh. you know, the clown from Ashes to Ashes, and, you know, it was just no. a complete sort of freak show of Bowie fans, and I it, it. It, life for him then must have been sort of nigh on impossible in terms I believe of security. It. I believe it. Oh, no way. While we're on Eno, or while we're on Bowie, we should talk about Eno. Eno, my understanding is... I don't know exactly what he does, but I think he has something to do with Cross the Border. Is that right?
Okay, so uh, one of the reasons why... So, so the Measure for Measure album, the fourth album, uh, I'd had experience that I didn't enjoy with Keith Forsey. Uh, there were some elements that I didn't enjoy with the second album, Privity Man. I'd produced the third album, Sidewalk, myself, and that was a mistake in some ways as well, mm-hmm. and it mm-hmm. produced a kind of substandard recording, and that was... You know, I, I had nobody else to blame except myself. Huh. So I was wary of the whole producer thing. So I came up with an idea and I thought, okay, I'm going to split Measure for Measure, the fourth album, in half. And we're going to do one half with one producer and the other half with another producer. And, you know, if one of them doesn't work out, then we can swap over and do the rest of the album with with, with that one, you know. So I kind of had right. a safety plan, if you know what I mean. Sure. So I, I chose uh, David Lord because... Um, he had produced uh, Peter Gabriel's fourth album, which I was a great mm-hmm. fan of and was heavily involved with the Fairlight, which was a kind of staple of my, my mm-hmm. working to- tools. And I also chose Rhett Davies, who he'd been uh, heavily involved with um, a lot of my favourite albums, which were very early Eno, Eno solo albums. Mm-hmm. And, of course, the Roxy Music Camp and so on. Right. And when I met up with Rhett Davies, he said, listen, um, uh, I've got a studio I want to use. There's no tape machine in it, but that doesn't matter because your, your friend, this is my friend, uh, Andy mm-hmm. Hilton, has uh, got a very big hire business and he has um, a whole warehouse full of these brand new Mitsubishi 32-track digital tape recorders, which was the brand new digital technology um, of the day. But I want to use this little studio because it's got a great desk in it. It's got a Trident desk in it. And so he took me to this little place um, uh, and it was it was in a building that had a kind of square in the in the middle of it, not a big square, but a square nonetheless. And uh, we went in and set up there. And at some point, um, I opened the, the. It was a studio as if somebody had kind of taken a lot of the key gear out of there and just left the desk. And it was almost as if people had sort of walked out mid-working because there were papers screwed up on the floor and there was you know lots of junk everywhere and whatever. And I I remember. I found it quite difficult to work in this situation and, and wanted to clean it all up. And in the process of that, I opened a few cupboards and in the cupboards were all of Brian Eno's um, pedal boards and, and mm. various effects and so on. And it was as if he'd just walked out the previous right. afternoon and left all his stuff there. <laughs> and uh, I recorded uh, across the border uh, with Rhett Davies and at some point Rhett must have realised that uh, you know I was a bit of a fanboy for mm. Eno. And he said to me, you realise he's just living in the basement across that square. He's only about 20 feet away, you know, 20 steps away. And I went, really? Wow, that's amazing. And uh, sort of didn't pursue that conversation any further, except for the fact that I'd written these backing vocals on this song, Cross the Border, which uh, we hadn't done any of the vocal recording at this point. But he had the demo, and I said, well, I actually wrote these backing vocals kind of in Eno's style, based on some of those early albums like Taking Tiger Mountains by Strategy uh-huh. and Another Green World and Here Come the Warm Jets. So, yeah, so when we go in to record these, uh, you know, that, that's where they came from. And So uh, we, in due course, uh, shut up shop there and um, went into George Martin's studio, Air Studios, yes. in the centre of London, and to do all the vocals. And on this particular morning, uh, I turned up to do some backing vocals and some uh, lead vocals I think were already recorded the microphone was set up in the studio and in walks Brian Eno with a very decrepit old black bicycle he's pushing 
<laughs> which he wheeled into the control room, and he was beside himself with excitement. He said, I've just bought this in Portobello Markets. It cost me 10 quid. It's an absolute bargain. And I looked at the bike and I went, that is the worst-looking bicycle I've ever seen in my life. Um, and... Uh, <laughs> Um, he'd obviously been invited there by Rhett Davies, and so the, the next thing I knew, I found myself standing in George Martin's studio at a microphone with Brian Eno Goodness. singing those backing vocals. Oh, oh my gosh. So, oh my I know, God. and it was an incredible thing. Now, the kind of coda to this story um, is quite an interesting one, because way back in the days of Flowers, <laughs> I introduced our then young manager, uh, Ray Hearn, to the work of Brian Eno. Um, now, Ray had a massive record collection, but he was you know, a very big reggae fan, and you know, his kind of world of music was quite different than my world of music. Mm-hmm. But Eno had been a big influence on me, and so I started feeding him bits of Brian Eno to listen to. Fast forward to 2020. This same manager went on to live in Japan many years of his life and uh, set up the, uh, Japan's biggest independent record label and has worked with lots of very interesting people and currently uh, commutes between Tokyo and London and is Brian Eno's manager. Oh. <laughs> so Brian Eno's manager is Flowers, the original Ice House manager. No way. No yep. way. What a life you've had, Iva. This is crazy. Every one of these stories is just amazing. That's wild. That's strange the way things kind of work it out. It really yeah. is. It really is. Um, we should talk about the new album, by the way. So Flowers, um, well, okay. How do you describe this again? So you were originally Flowers, and the album was called Ice House, or was it called Flowers? But anyway, no, whatever no, it is. Yeah, tell me. Uh, so we were our original band name was Flowers, and then we produced our first album based on one of the songs I'd written, and the album that's was called it. Ice House. Now, that's it. Yes, that was re- released in Australia and New Zealand with no problem whatsoever. But mm-hmm. when, and it caught the attention, the success it had caught the attention of international record companies. And when we eventually signed with Chrysalis, they said to us, "Now we need to do a little company name search." And mm-hmm. it hadn't occurred to me in a million years that a band name is actually a trading name, mm-hmm. and the bad news was that they came back to us and said, uh, bad news, guys, you can't be called Flowers anymore because there's a band in Scotland called Flowers and there's a couple of other people, I think, including Herbie Flowers, a very famous yeah. mm-hmm. session bass player. So you're going to have to think of a new name. And in fact, the Chrysalis had an internal kind of staff competition to rename the band. Really? And I think the, the winning name was Industrial Chili. <laughs> possibly one of, the, one of the worst band names I've ever heard in my life. What? But our thinking actually came around fairly quickly, which was, well, in Australia and New Zealand, we're only known by two things. We're known by the name Flowers, which is our band name, which we can't use anymore, mm-hmm. and the first album, Ice House. Yeah. And so we simply adopted the name of that first album. Perfect. Perfect. And so this new live album, 40-year anniversary, it just came out.
And it's so fantastic. And again, going back to kind of the difference of what Australian fans want from Ice House versus what, you know, the rest of us think about. This is a landmark album for them. And so seeing this live concert with these great covers thrown in, some T-Rex, some, uh, you know, Bowie again, Sex Pistols. This is a major event for people down there, right? So what happened was that it's uh, 40 years, of course, since the, the first album, the Flowers album, came out. So we were celebrating a 40th anniversary. And the, this big festival, which is held on a beach in Melbourne, called the St Kilda Festival, they contacted us because they were celebrating their 40th anniversary too. And uh. I had forgotten this completely. They, and they said, and by the way, when you were Flowers, you played and headlined at the very first St Kilda Festival. And it was an incredible kind of coincidence of, of 40 years anniversaries. But they said, we'd like you to play what you would have played that night 40 years ago. Oh, wow. And so the net result of that is, of course, we only had our first album, the Flowers album out. Mm -hmm. uh, what we did was play not all of, but most of that first album and a few of the cover versions that we would have been playing that night as well. So it's a fairly faithful representation of an evening yeah. 40 years ago. Yes, it's so strong. It's so good. And uh, this with the live album that I mentioned in concert that came out a few years ago, you're, I mean, from a live perspective, I know that's kind of more your focus these days. You're really on fire. I mean, I'm so jealous of the people down under who get to see you more often and get to have these experiences because the rest of us don't, you know? We... We're in a very lucky position because we can kind of pick and choose yeah. what we do. And, and it is kind of cherry picking, I must admit. But we've had some great experiences. As I say, we didn't play for 16 years. We really only yeah. fired up again in 2010. And 10 years has gone very quickly for us. I think, you know, we've played some extraordinary venues and events like this one in Melbourne. Uh, and we don't sort of overdo it. So the guys, uh, and we're, we're spread out between, so three of us are from Sydney, well, Sydney and Adelaide, and then another three in Melbourne. So we don't physically get to socialise mm -hmm. um, in between shows. So that means that when we do arrive at the same place, you know, from an airport, <laughs> you know, it's a great excuse to kind of catch up and just have fun. And they are very funny guys. Yes. Um, and, and incredibly brilliant musicians. And I've been working with, you know, most of them a very long time. Our drummer, yeah. he didn't tell me at the time when I auditioned him in 1985, but he was still finishing his last year of high school. Oh, my gosh. And um, we were about to go on tour of the world, and he, he thought it kind of judicious not to actually drop the fact that he was still at school. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Fortunately, he had finished his final year before it, it came to pass that we did have to go overseas and, and perform. So Paul Wheeler, our drummer, has been playing with us for 35 years, so it's a mighty long time. Yeah. And yeah. he's a real powerhouse. So you, you sort of identify from this particular new album, this um, Ice House Plays Flowers, it's a very high energy set. So we're yes. talking about songs that were written for the kind of punk scene of 1980 mm -hmm. and by a bunch of 23, 24-year-olds. Mm -hmm. And I knew it was going to be hard work, and it was hard work, but it was immensely rewarding to be able to sit back and listen to that and go, wow, you know, I I'm 65 it. now, so yes. how did I do that? <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. It's such a great album, and it's such a great gift, I think, to fans, longtime fans who have been kind of um, 
especially in America where we did, you know, the Ice House album didn't make that big of an impression on us. But here's this gift coming 40 years later that proves that Iva can still do it and the band is still strong. Um, I had mentioned earlier that I wanted to ask you, I, I have a business related question. Uh, you know, like I said, we try to touch on sort of the business side or the money side of things on here very sensitively. And I, I was curious when things started to turn around for Ice House there in the late 80s. How did your life change? Because I, I, uh, I'm not saying that America is the end all beat all, but it is. It does seem to be that holy grail that bands usually strive for because there's more exposure and more money to be made, more success to be had here than other places. When you finally get that after eight years or whatever, how does your life change? You're a little bit of a sex symbol. You're on MTV all the time. I'm guessing your mailbox money is increasing. Tell me about it. So we had an interesting but incredibly clever structure set up for us by the management, who, as I said, uh, when they adopted us, we were the kind of apprentices of, of a stable that included Australia's two biggest bands by miles. Mm-hmm. But I'd made some mistakes with that, those bands, and, and we benefited from that experience that the managers had gained and they had failed pretty much to get any international success for both of those bands even though they were brilliant bands mm-hmm. and so i know that in their thinking they were they had had their sights set on you know the rest of the world for 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 us and what they did was incredibly clever they uh they se- separated the territories of australia and new zealand from the rest of the world and so when we signed our, uh, our record contract with a little independent company in Australia, the, Australia and New Zealand were the only territories they had in that contract. Mm. Then when Chrysalis internationally wanted to sign us, then Chrysalis signed us for the rest of the world, excluding Australia and New Zealand. Mm. Now, for an Australian band, everything to do with breaking the rest of the world is expensive, yeah. incredibly expensive. Yeah. Because just to relocate a band and its equipment from, you know, from Sydney to you know New York or London or yeah. whatever is, is is a whole different ball game than sort of if you live in London and you've got to get, get across to Paris or whatever it's you know whatever mm-hmm. catch the, catch right. the, the ferry. So right from the word go, um, and management told us about this too. Said we we're, we're going to have to dip into the advances that this record company's given us to cover things like touring, and you're not going to. You're going to make a loss, you know. You're going to go, uh-huh. get all the way to America, and nobody will know who you are, and you'll be doing strange little clubs and to half houses, and and mm-hmm. it'll be a hard slog to get people to pay any attention. And at the end of it, you know, that by the time we pay for airfares and accommodation, all that sort of stuff, it's actually going to lose a lot of money. And that continued to happen. Uh, Chrysalis paid for mm-hmm. the, the for the music videos since you were talking about them. Yeah. Some of those were hideously expensive because a number of them were done by Russell. Mulcahy, and of course he made very, very expensive production. Right. And, you know, the, this was a, a necessary tool, but an incredibly costly one. However, in Australia and New Zealand, none of those costs were coming out of Australia and New Zealand. And mm-hmm. so from, from record one, we made money out of Australia and New Zealand. Great, great. And by the time we got to that point where Chrysalis decided that Code Blue was all about Australia and they weren't going to release it, Mm-hmm. We went back to Chrysalis and said, right, what's the kind of wash up here? You're, we're going to terminate this contract and you're not going to release this album. What's the picture? And Chrysalis came back and they said, well, 
you're in the red for $1.7 million. So after all those years and all those successes in America, the net wash-up was a loss. Oh, my gosh. Oh. But but out of Australia and New Zealand, of course, Mm -hmm. that was a different story. Oh so gosh. yes, I'm, ple- I'm pleased to say it was definitely worthwhile. And yes, I, I did um, end up buying my first house from the Flowers album, and uh-huh. and then within two years, another house in which I wrote um, Great Southern Land and Primitive Man, and so it all worked out well. But it was a kind of strange That's situation crazy. to be actually losing money in yeah. the rest of the world and making lots of money in Australia and New Zealand. Wow! Wow! This business is so weird. It's so weird. I mean, I've talked to 300 people and have heard similar stories to that, and uh, it just never makes sense to me. It's so strange. Well, it was very, very clever of the management, and and I guess probably the cleverest thing. Um, and I did contribute to this because I did have to buy back some rights. But I actually own absolutely everything that I. Oh, good. Produced. And I know that that's a ridiculously uh, unusual situation. Um, there are any, you know, most, I could name just about any other Australian actor went through the 80s and know that, you know, along the way they've lost some of their songs and they've lost some of their recordings. And yeah. it's, it's tragic, really, but that stuff happened, you know. So yeah. hats off to our managers, I guess. Yeah, no kidding. Um, okay, I've been debating whether to ask about this because if you can't tell, I love you a lot and I don't want to reduce... Ice House to a haircut, but tell me about when you cut off your mullet. Was that difficult uh, for you? Was that a dramatic moment? No, it wasn't. I had um, um, uh, I was, I was in a situation I was going grey for a start. And so, because I had a passion for windsurfing, so most of the time I had it tied up in a ponytail, but mm-hmm. I got to a point where I looked in the mirror and it was a, it was a, it was a greying ponytail. Mm-hmm. And I just thought, you know, I look like some old hippie from the set from, you know, from Woodstock. Right. Uh, and and, uh, and I thought, uh, that's got to go, you know, that's, I'm done now. So okay. that, it, it, wasn't a dif- it wasn't a difficult thing. What year was that? When did you finally cut loose? Oh, gee, I can't even remember that. Uh, it was a fair way down the line, I guess probably 90. Well, I still had it in, when I was performing Berlin, the ballet. So Were you? that was okay. 95. Yeah, it must have been somewhere just after 95, I think. Okay, wow. Yeah, I've, always, I, I've always wondered, I mean... Uh, you know, a better or worse, I tell, you're, in some ways to some Americans, you're that guy with that great mullet, you know, good looking guy in those videos. So that was kind oh, of, thank you. well, because unfortunately we didn't get the whole story. We just got a couple of little nuggets of the whole thing, you know, and image is everything, as you know, for especially around that time with MTV. And so I was wondering when that thing finally went away. Because uh, that was well, kind of a trademark. Well, if you want to kind of go, go backwards and, and go back to me in the days of Flowers when we were playing those punk covers and stuff. Uh-huh. And, you know, I kind of had the really short hair that you might <laughs> kind of refer back to Lou Reed on the Transformer album, Rock yeah. and Roll Animal. Yes. Um, so I did the kind of full circle, you really. Did. <laughs> you really did. You really did. I get it. Uh, okay. Uh, well, thanks, Iva. Thanks for talking to me. One, one last little thing, and this isn't even a question so much as a comment. I, uh, again, go back. I really like the Sidewalk album.
I think one of the reasons I like it is because, as I mentioned earlier, it reminds me a lot of Simple Minds. When I hear um, there's a trajectory going on there in the sound. So many of the songs to me sound like reel-to-reel cacophony era Simple Minds. And I wonder if that was intentional. I mean, I don't know. You two know each other and you're friendly. Were you inspired by each other? Because the title track alone sounds just like something that they would have done around that point, you know, waterfront, new gold dream, whatever. There are elements, you know, I've, I've been having this conversation with my 24 year old son and he's a musician mm. and he's grappling with the whole process of songwriting. And I said, you know, I can talk you through songs and I can tell you where that bit came from. So you picked out, for example, the drumsticks on glam. Yeah. And then I pointed you straight in the direction that you thought that came from, and you were yep. absolutely right, um, being, you know, the, the ant music track by um, mm -hmm. Adam and the Ants. That's it. <laughs> now, that's just one tiny little element. So when you start kind of picking up bits from... Uh, I said, uh, Evan, my son, sort of looked at this performance of ours of, of, uh, in Germany of, around about 1984 of us playing Hey Little Girl, and it has a kind of frantically busy guitar rhythm guitar that i'm playing while i'm singing and he'd never seen this sort of live experience before and and seen me working so hard at playing that frantic guitar part mm -hmm. while i'm singing this fairly lazy pretty vocal line over the top of it right and i said but evan early talking heads right mm. that suddenly makes sense that's so it doesn't surprise me that you come across uh, things on the Sidewalk album, especially Sidewalk, that you can go, well, uh, there's a bit of Simple Minds there. Mm -hmm. There's a bit of Simple Minds on that track we talked about from Primitive Man, one right. by one. The same right. sort of approach to a guitar that Charlie Birchall mm -hmm. has, which is quite different. Mm -hmm. I mean, he's a quite distinct guitarist. He is very much um, so, yeah. So... You know, every now and again, I will fall into one of these characters and just go, "I'm I'm Charlie Birchall for five minutes." You know? <laughs> yeah, that, that's a that's a really good person to be for five minutes because he's a, he's amazing. That whole band is amazing. Well, and so are right. you. I mean, that's why I like. That's why these albums, like Measure, especially the first half of Measure for Measure, I think is so brilliant. And it's because it. I love Ice House, and I love the bands that obviously influence you, and. Uh, because they're my favorites too. And so I get to hear you, a band I love, doing ver not versions of bands that I, they're not copies, but they're so, they're, we're influenced by the same things. What's moving you is what's moving me. And so hearing it come through you is really special because I love you all. You know what I mean? It's a great feeling. I do. I do indeed. And it's, uh, yes, a lot of that shared experience in people's enjoyment of music. And, you know, I love sort of making those discoveries of yeah. uh, the kind of weird connections. I've said once again to my son, you know, you would go through people's kind of playlists of their favorite things and you might sample a billion people and mm. you will never get a, the same playlist. You yeah. know, oh, there true. are infinite possibilities and, and that is exactly what music is. It's kind of an infinite possibilities of numbers and, and yeah. chord progressions and sounds and frequencies and instruments it's uh, extraordinary so it's quite interesting when you kind of register somebody who's been driving in the same lane as mm -hmm. you for a while <laughs> yeah yeah you pick it up we we feel the same things so anyway i have a i just i love you a lot thank you for talking with me i've been wanting to do this for years i've loved ice house for so long 
um, ever since that concert in 1987. So thanks for chatting with me. It's a dream. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. All right, there you have it, Ivan Davies. What a guy. I, I love that guy, and I love this band. And uh, that was pretty surreal. Plus, it was kind of fun to ask him about the about the mullet. I wasn't sure if I was going to do that, but that was such a cool story. I'm kind of glad I did. Okay, the live album, Ice House Plays Flowers 2020, is out again. And I want to close it out with one more song off of it. This is their version of Pretty Vacant, which is so killer. The Pistols. Um, now we have two copies of this that we're going to be giving away, and as you know, in order to be in order to qualify for this, you have to be a tier one Patreon member. So go into Patreon. The, the link is in the description of this show, and just tap on it and donate two bucks a month, and it puts you in the running to win any and all swag we ever get. So um, hurry and do that. We're going to pull winners this coming Sunday. Okay which is what, the 23rd, I believe? So yeah, we'll pull the winners then. I will alert the uh, the label and they will mail those out to you. Um, now, I think I'm gonna hold off on even giving a teaser for next week because uh, there's a chance it may not work out. So anyway, um, just come back next week, okay? You know it's gonna be good. <laughs> anyway, huge thanks as always to Yan the Man Makevich, my right-hand man, for all that you do. Thank you, buddy. Um, you guys know how to find us. You can like our page on Facebook. You can uh, send us a message on there. You can send us an email at thehustlepod at gmail.com. Or you can find us on Twitter at thehustlepod. Thank you, everybody. We love you.